Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You've heard us say it before, the 2020 presidential election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic. The entire system of elections in the United States is for the most part set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the hen house. Because if all the foxes are guarding the hen house, then they're not going to let some other fox go grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that in most cases, in most places, works very well because you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. So we're here to podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We will interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration. From voter registration to ballot casting and counting, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote by mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen, like the future of our country depends on it. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic. I'm Royville Brown, who is sat in, again, a gloriously sunny Bay Area. It's funny sunshine always shines in california today we're joined by emily chanel justice who is the director of the temetry contemporary ukrainian program at the ukrainian research institute at harvard university she is a socio-cultural anthropologist who has been doing research in ukraine since 2012 she has published academic articles in several journals including the history and anthropology revolutionary russia and signs uh, the journal of women in culture and society she received her PhD from the Graduate Center City University of New York in September 2016. Emily, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm all right. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm guessing that uh, because of the Ukrainian war, your expertise, your intellect is in high demand at the moment. Yes, I um, have been trying to, you know, spread the word about what's going on in Ukraine and, and reach a lot of different audiences as much as I can, because I think Ukraine has been really, um, unfortunately, in the United States in particular, really misunderstood um, for the past 30 years of its independence. So I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad there's a lot of people who are interested now. Um, and I'm glad I, I'm able to, you know, use my expertise to help people understand what's going on. Uh, tell us a little bit about that misapprehensions and misunderstandings that uh, you know, Americans, or let's say the West, have maybe had about Ukraine prior to the conflict. 
I think a couple of things. One of the things is that Russia is such a larger country that the Russian narrative about Ukraine tends to be more common. And so a lot of people don't know that Ukraine is a huge country, 44 million people, um, that its history goes back into, you know, the ninth century at least, if not earlier, and that Ukraine has had several very important, significant independence movements, several different kinds of claims to its own freedom and sovereignty, um, and that Ukrainian national identity is very well established and frankly, well contested. And I mean that in a good way. People have been arguing about what it means to be Ukrainian for many, many years. And that's a that's a good thing, right? That's something that's important that shows there's a kind of robust sense of what Ukraine is and what Ukraine could be, you know, let's be fair, like, that's not a knock on on your average American for not knowing that, right? Like, I know that because I'm an expert, and I've been working and doing research there for a decade. And that's, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, But I think a lot of people, you know, what they're seeing right now, is that Ukraine is showing this kind of resilience that they didn't expect. And a lot of people are surprised. People who have been studying Ukraine for a decade, were not surprised at all. This is exactly what I thought, you know, how I thought Ukrainians would respond. And I suppose one of the outcomes of this conflict, regardless of the length of it, is that Ukrainian identity has been something which is not Russian, is now going to be couched as something which is almost anti-Russian. What uh, this invasion has done is to galvanize uh, that sense. That's right. Most of the of the survey data that we've had in the past 10 years or so, let's say, It shows that Ukrainians have had a growing animosity toward Russians, um, and that's because of the the first invasion of Ukraine in 2014. But really, truly, even in 2014 and beyond, you know, the attitude toward your average Ukrainian's attitude attitude toward Russians wasn't that Russians as a whole are bad or I don't like Russia, I don't like Russians. And that has changed dramatically. Um, This unprovoked aggression has really shifted people's perception of Russia and and Russians in general. Um, and, and frankly, you know, despite Putin's best intentions of trying to make some kind of brotherly narrative be the one that succeeds here, um, Ukrainians feel very far away from, from Russians now. And they feel like even if they had thought of them as sort of not that different in the past, now they see themselves as very, very different from Russia and from Russians. One of the things which I, I was surprised about was that Zelensky was a massive celebrity actually in Russia and in, in, in Belarus uh, beforehand. So whilst there is a Ukrainian language and whilst Ukraine has a very distinct history, which in part is Russian because Kievan Rus, the first R- Russian state, was uh, founded in Kiev and it was obviously an integral part of the Soviet Union, but there still are these cultural uh, links between the countries because uh, Zelensky was popular and quite common on Russian TV when he was a comedian. So there are these cultural bonds uh, between, um, let's say, the the great Slavic ex-Soviet republics, aren't there? Well, there are. I mean, I would say, you know, the Kievan Rus... The the claim that the Kievan Rus is the origin of Russian history, that's a Russian narrative. The claim that the Kievan Rus is the origin point for Ukrainian national history is a different version of the story, a Ukrainian version of the story. Those are sort of the small things that are actually really important to keep in mind. There's a guy named Mikhail Khrushchevsky who wrote an entire multi-volume um, book about this in, in in the 20th century in Ukraine um, to, to say, actually, the Kievan Rus is, uh, it's it's Ukrainian. It's not the origin of the, of the Russian um, Slavic history. You know, and that's, those are the types of narratives that Vladimir Putin uses to claim a brotherhood with Ukrainians. The Ukrainians don't accept that claim. And in large part, they don't learn history in the same way that says that those shared narratives exist. So that's that's really important to think about. And the other thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is that the reason there's such a strongly shared space is because of this imperial Russian and later Soviet claim to the territory of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine is in the Slavic sphere of in- influence, not because it's inherently like Russia. It's because Russia made it so from the imperial period through the Soviet period, and again, in the post-Soviet independence period, obviously, you know, the question of entertainment markets, the Russian entertainment market was really big. And so a lot of artists in Ukraine also performed in Russia, for example. Zelensky is a comedy 
star in both countries. Lots of his programming was in Russian. That's absolutely true, and that's fine. But I just want to make it very clear that that's not because of a choice that Ukraine made. That's because of of decades and hundreds of years of Russian imperialism claiming that Ukraine was part of the Slavic sphere of influence. One of the things which I said and you agreed is go has to happen is going to happen um after this conflict is that there's going to be an even heightened sense of ukraine's distinctness we had on greg satel who is an american uh, businessman who um lived and worked in uh kiev in ukraine uh from the early 2000s to i think just before the maidan so just before 2013 so he saw the orange revolution is mad to a, a ukrainian woman he has ukrainian relatives now and he talked about the political apathy that people had in terms of Ukrainian nationhood, let's say, when he first went to Ukraine. But by the time he'd left, that was not at all the case. It, is this a natural kind of outflowing of that, that Zelensky uh, in the last week has banned, what, 11 political parties because of their links to Russia or their adherence to some pan-Slavic identity? Or, or should we just say this is just um, a wartime move, which a wartime president is actually making? Um, the ban of those parties, um, so only only some of them were active parties. So just to be clear about this move, the majority of the parties that were banned didn't have representation in, in parliament or in the government at all. They just simply exist. One of the parties is the party of Viktor Medvedchuk, who is an oligarch, who is uh, has very close ties to Vladimir Putin, um, who allegedly Putin is his is Medvedchuk's daughter's godfather. Um, Medvedchuk was was already um, under house arrest for treason against the Ukrainian state uh, and has since escaped that house arrest in the war. It's it's important to point out here that and, and Ukraine has dozens of political parties too. This it's not like it's not like there's five parties or, or there's twelve parties and he banned eleven, right? There's there's many more than that. Um, and and so you know the amount of actual representation that those parties had, I, I think, is minimal at best. Um, so it is to some extent a symbolic move. Obviously, he was elected democratically in 2019. He had unprecedented support across the country, and now he is, you know, I think representing Ukraine in a in a largely positive way um, around the world. You know, he's he's been thrown into this position that I don't think he expected to be in. Um, and 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 I should go back to you know when you were mentioning the the 2013 2014 Euromaidan and those those protests. You know, that is a really important time where democracy um, and again, like this is an imperfect democracy. Ukraine is, I'm not going to put some, put Ukraine on some kind of pedestal to say that they were doing everything right, but they, you know, largely were working really hard toward creating a better democracy. And right up until this invasion in February, the things that Zelensky was actually dealing with as president were banal, frankly. Um, I mean, he was dealing with judicial reform and, and, and oligarch reform, trying to prevent oligarchs from having so much power, right? So he was already trying to do certain things to establish and, and, and secure Ukraine's democracy. Frankly, I'm, I'm in a position where I am not going to really come down hard on a move that he makes, such as banning some pro-Russian political parties just, you know, in this particular context, Ukraine is going to have a lot of concerns when this war is over. Probably that's one of them. But frankly, I don't really I don't think we need to blow it out of proportion as some some sort of significant move right now. Zelensky, before the invasion, was actually uh, quite unpopular. And you've really reminded us of uh, actually um, his standing now that he has throughout the world. Um, he's somebody who's been able to neatly convey the travails of his people to the worldwide media. And that is somebody who's in stark contrast because he's a media professional. So he walks around with his iPhone filming himself and, and telling Ukrainians, I am still here. I, I'm not going to leave you. You know, I don't need a plane out of here. What I need is the world to give me arms type of thing. It's been an incredibly powerful and emotive way to see a leader exhort his people to defend themselves against this aggression. Whereas Putin feels like a man from 50, 60, 70 years ago, who is um, stoic, implacable, and just incredibly distant. 
Why was Zelensky uh, so unpopular before the invasion? He's a, he, he comes to power in 2019 with great approval ratings. He's somebody who's not part of the political system. What happened between 2019 and 2022? Well, I think it's also a, a little bit, at least, of a misnomer to say that Zelensky was somehow dramatically unpopular. I mean, the President uh, Yushchenko left office after coming to power after the Orange Revolution. He left office after that with a 5% approval rating, and Zelensky was nowhere near that. Um, so Zelensky was less popular than he had been. That Let me make that very clear. He did not hold a 75% approval rating for the full two years of his presidency. I think it was something around 35% um, in when the invasion happened. Something well, it, 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 it was tw- 25, 25%, which, which is pretty low. It's pretty low. That's fair. Um, I, I think so. I mean, depending on how much everybody wants to listen to me talk about Ukrainian domestic politics, um, there are very specific reforms that Zelensky was trying to put through, including this de-oligarchization bill that would take some of the power out of the hands of oligarchs. It was a huge, huge debate in Ukraine whether what Zelensky was doing was really um, effectively removing oligarchs from power or was it attacking specific oligarchs who were a threat to his power? Um, we'll never know. Uh, the other reform that he was trying to or not trying to put through was judicial reform. Um, there, there, there's a, a, a lot of corruption in the judicial sector in Ukraine. Um, and Zelensky was pretty slow in implementing some of those reforms that civil society activists were being asked, were asking for. Um, the, 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 campaign promise that he made in 2019 was that he would end the war with Russia and Eastern Ukraine, he would end that war. And he did not have a lot of success in trying to establish a more permanent ceasefire. He tried a couple of times in ways that the Ukrainian public reacted dramatically negatively to. Um, and and so he pulled back. I just want to you know commend him for not doing things that the Ukrainian public didn't like. That's how democracy works. Um, and so those, I think, are three things that were making him um, be less popular. You know, he he could be assessed as not having come through on his promises and his campaign platform. Um, people were really concerned about the, the costs of, of utilities. Gas prices weren't getting any lower, right? So the things that your average everyday person is concerned about, he wasn't fixing in a way that people wanted him to. Um, those are the reasons that he was rather unpopular in February of, of 2022. Um so I think that helps us understand better why he has rocketed back into popularity because, you know, people weren't critical of, for instance, his positioning in international institutions. They weren't critical in his handling of, of global conflict. They were critical of domestic things. And now those things don't matter. And so he's been able to really, you know, show that, that um, you know, bring people together. And again, you know, he's done the right thing, right? He's, he's done the right thing by simply staying in Ukraine. Um, to some extent, that's all it really takes right now. Yeah, uh, he's absolutely doing the right things. And you're completely uh, correct that domestic politics in Ukraine uh, now doesn't matter because the the survival of the whole nation um, is is in the balance. So what we're going to do now is kind of pivot to our kind of thought scenarios. And I fundamentally have two. The battle from the southern port city of Mariupol would be seen as a major strategic success for Russia, giving it control over much of Ukraine's south coast. Our security correspondent Gordon Carrera has this assessment of the Russian advance. Russian military strategy has changed since the war began. When they first invaded nearly a month ago, the Russian forces came in broadly on three fronts, from the north, from the south and from the east. The aim seems to have been for lightning strikes to take key cities, but instead they met fiercer resistance than they expected, and that strategy effectively failed. So what's happened since then? Well, if we look at the capital, Kyiv, they've been trying to encircle the city, but they've not managed that entirely. And it doesn't look like they've got the combat power to go in and take the heavily defended capital. So instead, we've seen these kind of missile strikes on it. But the Russians are regrouping and bringing in reinforcements. What that looks to be is the Russians targeting the military infrastructure which supports Ukraine, including the supply routes for it. 
So overall, what we get from this is a sense of a war of attrition in which the Russians are trying to pound some of the cities, trying to do as much damage as they can to the Ukrainian military and many casualties, including civilian casualties. So our first scenario, um, the war ends in the next, uh, let's say, two weeks to two months. Uh, the Russians cease operations whilst the Ukrainians are making small but significant gains. Can Russia keep Crimea and Donetsk? Would that be acceptable to the Ukrainians if they had some level of enforceable security guarantees from the West? We're also joined by Piotr Kurzan on stage, who has a great knowledge when it comes to geopolitics, has done work at the UN. Let me just repeat that this scenario. So the war is going to end relatively soon. Um, in the next uh, two weeks, so let's say to the next two months, the Russians make no more significant advances. Maybe, maybe Mariupol is lost. So they have all of that um, Sea of Azov coast. Odessa is not uh, captured. Uh, neither is Kiev. Fundamentally, the front line uh, that we see today is what it is then. There's no regime change. That's one thing I was make incredibly clear. It's not like there's been a palace coup or that Putin has stepped down from power. Putin is still in power. What peace agreement do you think would be acceptable for the Ukrainians if the Russians fundamentally don't advance any further, but there is peace, Emily? To be quite honest, and, and not to make this too short of a conversation, but there is no acceptable scenario in which Ukraine doesn't regain all of its territory, including Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea. Um, and I do not, frankly, believe that that it's likely um, that there will be an agreement without that at this point. There's a couple of reasons that I think this. And as as we all know, you know, many of us have who, who made any predictions at all have been very wrong um, for a couple of months now. But I, I still, you know, just based on what I'm seeing and what people are, are saying, the, the main reason is that, that Russia is not a good faith negotiator. Vladimir Putin is not a good faith negotiator. So as long as Russia is making agreements, um, there Ukraine has no reason to trust that what Vladimir Putin says that he will do, he will do. So why would Ukraine make an agreement that says, sure, you can take this territory that you gained illegally, violently, unaccept in unacceptable ways, ways that we've already said is unacceptable, if you promise not to advance anymore. That was kind of where we already were on February 24th. So I don't really see any reason that Ukraine's calculation would be that different right now, because what they would be asked to give up would be dramatically worse for them in the long run. And we also know um, that quite frankly, Ukraine had security guarantees. Um, the Budapest Memorandum had an agreement in which Ukrainian sovereignty would be protected or that Ukraine would be protected if, if its sovereignty was ever violated. And that's not what happened in 2014. Um, so Ukraine is going to have to be offered something a lot better, I think, in order to agree to anything, let alone giving up those territories. Piotr, your input here. Uh, I think Emily's made a very strong case for the fact that not only uh, would a cessation of Russian operations be enough for Zelensky and the Ukrainians in terms of rolling back to the status quo pre the invasion at the, at the end of February. She's saying that the annexed territory of Crimea needs to be returned uh, to, uh, to Ukraine and so does uh, Lugansk and Donetsk. You know, Emily's very much correct. Let's put it this way. In only the past two days, we've seen, if this is March 23rd, we, we, we've seen since Monday, week beginning March 21st, a, a not just a, a shift from the stalemate, which we've arguably had in the past two weeks, with neither side really making much change. Specifically, the Russians are unable to to, to, to push through the, the tough resistance that the Ukrainians have given. But they're actually beginning to make counterattacks. The couple of counterattacks we saw in the south, around Kherson and uh, in the east, uh, southeast of uh, Kharkiv, are now being uh, supplemented by a proper, proper um, counterattack on the west of, of Kiev. Uh, and this isn't just any old counterattack. It's, you know, a lot of reports on the ground, including the defense correspondent for the Kiev independent states, that this is a full encirclement of those forces. So the, the Ukrainians aren't just holding lines. They're actually pushing back now. And so this comes to the question, 
why would you entertain peace negotiations properly? Why would you even entertain considering concessions if you've got the momentum behind you? The, uh, the Russians didn't properly entertain negotiations when they first under, undertook the um, the invasion. They started them, what, four days after the invasion as a sort of symbolic gesture. But really, it was just a way to sort of draw attention away from their the, the military goals, which was the primary uh, focus. Now the tables have turned and the Ukrainians are exactly in the same position. Like, well, if we if we can make more gains, then why on earth? Why don't we? So they're going to continue to do that. And depending upon if they do come across a wall somewhere, then maybe we'll see, uh, you know, a revisement. Maybe they'll begin to properly look into the negotiations again. But the more they can push further, the more uh, ground they can gain, both metaphorically and literally, uh, that gives them more more leverage in the conversation, more leverage in the uh, in negotiations. So, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, we can go to specifics perhaps in a second. I mean, definitely the they should be able to acquire, you know, at the end of the day, n nothing less than a, a, um, obtaining back the original borderlines and Crimea it would be considered a, a, a win for the Ukrainians. Anything less, and it's not a win. Um, but as to whether or not Putin would, you know, be willing to forego all that after eight years of, you know, annexing Crimea and keeping the conflict in Donbass going is another matter. So I think it comes down to also whether or not Putin is uh, uh influenceable and also whether or not he's even in the picture in the first case let's come back to this after this clip because uh you you are correct the ukrainians are starting to claw some territory back to developments in ukraine our correspondent jeff parry's live in lviv now jeff we're hearing ukrainian forces are clawing back territory russian troops struggling apparently what's the latest western intelligence show well, Michael, analysis across the board is pretty much that the Russian advance has stalled, perhaps with the exception of Mariupol, where they're making some creeping advances. There's some pretty fierce ground fighting going on there. It's acknowledged that the Russians have supply line issues and have had a lot of problems trying to sort that out, trying to get fuel and uh, food and all general supplies and uh, ammunitions uh, up to the troops at the front. And it would explain why uh, there are now reports that uh, the Russian troops around Kiev in particular are digging trenches, they're laying minefields, it appears that they're taking up defensive positions. And it would also explain why there is now um, suggestions that Belarus, Ukrainian neighbour to the north and a strong ally of the Russians are now planning to send about 15,000 of its own troops south into Ukraine to join up with Russian soldiers and to strengthen uh, that area that they, are, that they are at. But certainly the, the Ukrainians we know are, are planning on counter-offensives and, uh, and that the Russians will have to dig in and uh, try and fight those back, Michael. So let's think about this logically. One of the reasons why I've put this... Uh, time point of let's say uh two weeks to two months is that i'm presupposing uh, that putin will still be in power and that part of the peace agreement calculus is that he needs to go back to uh to his power brokers in moscow and to present some level of a victory and the victory fundamentally is that he can say that the status quo has been maintained, which is the reason why I threw in the line here that Ukraine should have an enforceable, uh, should have enforceable security guarantees from the West. Which is the one thing to, to, to your point, Emily, talking about the, uh, Budapest agreements back in the 1990s that the UK, the US and the Russia gave Ukraine, but it was not enforceable. Is there any way that Post this uh, conflict, if it ends relatively soon, the big if, that there could be a security arrangement which is going to be enforceable so the integrity of Ukraine is inviolable going forward. Um, Emily, what would that security uh, arrangement be, do you think? Well, I think this is a, this is really the million dollar question to some extent, isn't it? Because the existing security infrastructure is NATO. However, we all know that NATO is very hesitant to move in a really specific way on Ukraine because of Putin's nuclear threats, um, which, frankly, I'm pretty sure Putin is kind of counting on 
that that exact exchange, right? NATO can't really make NATO is really the only organization that can make security guarantees to Ukraine, but they won't because they don't want to risk provoking nuclear war. Um, and so you end up in a kind of stalemate where Russia currently has kind of this free reign to shell Ukraine and bomb Ukraine as much as they want, while everybody else tries to think about a different security structure. Um, I I truly don't know, honestly. I, I think we would have to really rebuild something, um, you know, completely different than what already exists. But how how do you do that without, I think the problem here is that this would be a security structure that's based on a Russian model where military aggression is part of the calculation. You know, the whole whole Western European, North American global order is based on presumably, you know, this defensive military alliance of NATO, not an offensive, not an aggressive one. The, the whole Russian model is built on this, I'm going to take what I want if you don't agree with me. Um, and, and so that puts us in a really difficult position. If we wanna preserve the world order that we had, then NATO does have to consider getting involved no matter what that provokes. And if there is no security response from NATO, then we have to decide if Russia is going to be the one who establishes the security order of the world. And and neither, honestly, neither of those are good options, um, which, again, benefits Vladimir Putin and benefits Russia. That stalemate benefits Putin. Uh, Pyotr, uh, Crimea was annexed in 2014 and Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, at least half of those oblasts were taken over by uh, Russian separatists in, in parentheses. These were, um, Russian troops out of uniform with a whole load of gangsters that took over half of those uh, oblasts there. The fact that the world had the relatively mooted response that it did. Yes, Obama put in some level of sanction against, uh, the annexation, the naked annexation of sovereign Ukrainian territory. But I'm going to say to you that geopolitical analysts and prime ministers, ambassadors, diplomats understood that the Russians had some level of claim on Crimea uh, because the overwhelming majority of its inhabitants were ethnic Russian, spoke Russian, and, and Crimea had only become part of Ukraine since the mid-1950s when Khrushchev decided for whatever reason, to move it from the Russian Federation to Ukraine. And that's before you talk about uh, the Russian uh, Black Sea port being at Sevastopol and the fact that it's a retirement home for ex-Russian military. Uh, that's what the Crimea was. So we went, this is wrong, but uh, surely with uh, with the attitude which we took in, which the world took into the annexation of Crimea in 2014, um, that has to be something which in a peace treaty, which if the peace ends soon, that's a really, really crucial point that um, we can say, you know what, the line is drawn there. The border has moved. But as a quid pro quo for the Ukrainian state going forward, we are going to uh, tie you more into Western security apparatus, if not actual formal NATO membership. But, you know, we're going to go and have, just like we do with Sweden, uh, we, uh, Sweden has military maneuvers with NATO. It's not a member of NATO, uh, but it's almost a shadow member. Uh, you know, we are going to train up the Ukrainian military. We're going to, um, you, we go, we're going to go on maneuvers with you, overt maneuvers with you, but Crimea is gone. So if I understood you correctly, you're saying we will give you full security assurances, in, in, including potentially full NATO membership, if you forego Crimea. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that's going to be part of the calculus, considering that to to Emily's point, if not, what um, if the Ukrainian uh, military can at least hold these Russian advances, and that's most definitely what they're doing, whatever logistical problems the Russian army has, it has. And we've seen that terrible morale, uh, troops not even eating the right food, they've got frostbite, whatever. Right. And the Ukrainian military is now even slowly pushing them back. But what you are going to do is potentially then massively lengthen this conflict. It becomes one completely of, of attrition. 
so we can, you can kind of stop that in the relative short term and almost go back completely to the situation before the invasion. But NATO will not offer you immediate membership, but will offer you, give you some kind of assistance membership. I forget exactly what uh, what the role of Sweden is actually called, but in 2016, NATO did maneuvers with Sweden. Sweden is not a part of NATO, so associate member status. There is something whereby uh, there is military cooperation between NATO and Ukraine, a la what we do with Sweden. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, so there are two ways that you could, you know, well, there are many ways you could look at this, but there are two ways that come to mind. So number one is how can we, namely the West, NATO, possibly say to the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian government, just Ukraine, hey, look, Crimea is gone. Accept that and you can join NATO or you can have your security assurances. That's a pretty tough thing to sell. And that's a pretty tough thing to stomach if you're Ukrainian, to simply accept that Crimea, whether or not its relationship with Russia is strong, that's quite difficult. But However, but we have, but Piotr, we have uh, de jour accepted that since 2014. We have. Well, we have. The Ukrainians haven't. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? And I don't know if this is an, an Emily. You could possibly tell me if I'm wrong here now. Uh, but um, the Ukrainian government stopped paying pensions to um, people who you, were Ukrainian citizens if they're in the oblast of Lugetsk and Donetsk in 2019. Stopped paying their pensions. So, so there is a tacit... Uh, 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 admission that the Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 borders of the line of control are now the international border between, uh, let's say, Rush, the Russian Federation and Ukraine. Let's just say that these, these two bits are now part of the Russian Federation. The Ukrainian government have stopped paying pensions and social security payments for people who were once Ukrainian that live in those territories. They're, they, they still hold Ukrainian passports, though. They are still Ukrainian citizens. They're actually not at all, um, not Ukrainian citizens. It's a, it's a complicated, um, you know, it's a complicated kind of legal situation. The people living in those territories, many of them are registered as internally displaced people. People who are internally displaced were obligated to come to Ukrainian government controlled territory to get their pensions. This is a lot of people. Um, that was fine until March of 2020 when the borders were closed because of COVID. The Ukrainian side has tried multiple times to open that border. The side ruled by the de facto Donetsk and Luhansk People's 
Republic authorities refuse to open the border with Ukraine. So the reason reason that Ukrainians, Ukrainian citizens who have Ukrainian passports cannot get their pensions is not because Ukraine is not paying them. It's because the authorities of these so-called republics refuse to let them leave to go to Ukraine. They will, however, let them leave to go to Russia. So this is this is another domestic issue that has been plaguing Zelensky for the past year. And I'd like to add to that, that there is quite an important element in both the breakaway republics or Donbass and Crimea, which is the Russians have been systematically and deliberately artificially um, expanding the Russian populace. They've been um, actually sending Russian people to, to relocate and settle in Crimea for a while. Uh, and there are some estimates that put the the the, the provisioning or providing out of over seven hundred thousand passports to people in the Donbass um, disputed areas. So the Russians are deliberately doing this so that they can artificially say that the population is primarily Russian or primarily identifies as Russian. When actually, historically speaking, you need to look further back at the 1991 referendum, for example, where the result, even though it was far closer than the west of rest of Ukraine, the average was about sort of 90% on the east of Ukraine for independence from the Soviet Union to 98, 99% on the west of Ukraine, even in Crimea, where it was still very, very close, you know, only 40 years since it had been given from Russia um, to Ukraine, uh, 54% of people in Crimea still voted to be independent uh, and go with Ukraine in that independence. So what Russia has done since then is artificially up the amount of Russian citizens and therefore representation so that they can artificially um, say that more Crimeans want to be part of Russia. They held that referendum vote in 2014, which was obviously ridiculous. Um, so it's not we shouldn't take at face value what um, what is being said in Crimea because it's difficult to tell whether that person is genuinely from Crimea or whether they they settled there relatively recently. So there are some hidden nomas about that. Thank you for for the e- e- explanation of the situation um, in uh, Lugansk and Donetsk, uh, Emily. And I do know that uh, uh, Ukrainian territory was part of the Minsk agreement that. Uh, Ukrainian currency was still supposed to be used uh, there and and it's not that basically those two breakaway republics have phased that out and only the Russian ruble is used and also that there is free visa travel and to your point Piotr yes um at some level of ethnic uh, waiting is going on and that the Russians have moved people into those provinces uh, from the Russian Federation and also in, into Crimea. One of the interesting things about the referendum back in 1991, which uh, the Supreme Soviet of Ukraine man- mandated should be taken before to basically to ratify uh, the Ukraine, as it was called then, to, to leave the Russian Federation. I'm not sure how much of that vote in somewhere like Crimea was anti the Soviet Union as opposed to pro uh, Ukrainian independence per se. I think people were fed up of the sclerotic nat- uh, nature of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. They've just been discredited because of the failed coup attempt against Gorbachev. The and then all of a sudden, uh, things are moving at a thousand miles an hour geopolitically. You have the Baltics declaring in- independence, Armenia saying we've gone already, etc. I don't know. And I'm asking you the question. This is a genuine question, Emily. How much that vote in Crimea, just just to use that specific geographic place, was so much of it was anti the Russian potentially the Russian Federation or just anti the Soviet Union and communism? Well, two points. Um, The first point is, does it matter? I don't think that it does. Um, By that time, you know, what what I think most people were probably after was a peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, which is thankfully largely what happened. Um, So doesn't doesn't really matter. the second thing that's, a, I think, a really important and perhaps more important here is that let's not forget that Crimea did not have the status of oblast within Ukraine. So it wasn't, it wasn't 
the same as the other territories of Ukraine. Actually, it was the Autonomous Republic of Crimea. So it actually had its own parliament. It had its own Ministry of Education. That that that's that's the original topic of my dissertation research that began, you know, over ten years ago was was higher education. And Crimea actually had its own ministry that had its own laws. It had its own legislation about higher education. It had its own student activist movement. Um, Crimea. So Crimea, yes, technically was part of Ukraine, right? The Ukrainian state was was ultimately the authority, but but it had a lot more autonomy within Ukraine. Um, and the other thing that's an important part of that story is that the indigenous population of Crimean Tatars who lived in Ukraine um, have always is felt very strongly that it's important for Crimea to be part of Ukraine, again, because they had uh, greater autonomy and greater governing powers within Ukraine than they would have and than they do under Russia. So they also had their own parliament, their own elected representational government um, called the Majlis um, that that was part of, of the Autonomous Republic of Crimea. Um, and now that Majlis is run in exile in Ukraine. They have always been been extremely um, pro being part of Ukraine. And, and as Pyotr mentioned, you know, this intentional removal of the pro-Ukrainian and Ukrainian speaking and Ukrainian ethnic populations of Crimea in order to make Crimea look more pro-Russian than it is, is a really important part of the story. These are people who have been targeted, um, you know, they've been persecuted by the Russian government claiming that they're, they're part of terrorist organizations. And that's, that's a way to shut down Crimean Tatar political organizing. Um, so Crimea is, is very much to some extent used as a kind of pawn in a lot of the Russian narratives right now. But doesn't this then make fundamentally what I'm saying is a plausible scenario even more likely uh, because uh, there has been this ethnic waiting um, and Crimea had this special uh, status within the Ukrainian state within. Uh, so, and then if we look at Luhansk and Donetsk, um, yes, Russians have been moved in, right? The Russians are, are, are tipping the hand of these two republics. So if the conflict, if the Russians and I take your point, what you said before uh, uh, earlier, Emily, is that the Russians fundamentally are of not being good actors, good faith actors in terms of adhering to peace treaties. But surely those three provinces have gone for all the reasons which, which you just said. You had this special uh, uh, autonomous uh, status within the Ukrainian state. It wasn't an oblast. It wasn't just, a, you know, a, a regular province. It had its own parliament. The Russians have moved a whole load of people in. Ditto, Lugansk and Donetsk. Are we saying that all those people then need to leave again for peace to be achieved? That, to me, w would seem that uh, we're just perpetuating the conflict. Anybody feel to jump? Feel free to jump in. Hi, hi, Royfield. This is Elena. And I wanted to answer the specific question that you just asked a few minutes ago, because I actually lived in Ukraine, which was at that time part of the Soviet Union in 1991. I mean, I was very young, but I do recall. Um, it's hard to put it in words, but there was a feeling of just absolute euphoria um, in people's minds about the opening of the uh, Soviet Union at the time towards all the opportunities and being linked to the rest of the world and kind of overcoming the Iron Curtain and just being plugged in. Uh, we were all mesmerized with all type of Western Westernization, democratization, liberalization. I mean, it was an amazing feeling of opportunity and optimism. So um, it is hard, of course. It's impossible for us to go back and conduct surveys and understand what exactly was going on. But I think there was really a general feeling of optimism and kind of self-determination and just... I would imagine that I, didn't, I wasn't eligible to vote at that time, but I would imagine that a number of people were also voting a yes to kind of step away from all this past, which was burdening the populations, and towards something which was new and promising and good and was going to kind of lift everybody up. 
Elena, uh, th- thank you for, for your contribution. Uh, we are joined on stage also by a good friend of the podcast, Tyrion Fisher, over there in Berlin. Uh, and we have uh, Ben Ben Mendelssohn, I believe uh, he, he could be between uh, Ouagadougou in West Africa or, or even uh, Rio. Um, but Elena, that was uh, a wonderful um, in, um, interjection. And I'd like to, like to thank you for that. because I think uh, we can talk very much from an academic point of view. And, uh, but you you were there on the ground and you can you really did sum up uh, the euphoria that people felt with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. As the war in Ukraine rages on and Ukrainians fight bravely for their country, European Union steps up once more its support for Ukraine and the sanctions against the aggressor, aggressor that is Putin's Russia. For the first time ever, the European Union will finance the purchase and delivery of weapons and other equipment to a country that is under attack. This is a watershed moment. HRVP Borrell will present to you the proposal in a few minutes. At the same time, we're strengthening once more our sanctions against the Kremlin and its collaborator, Lukashenko's regime. We are doing everything we can to support Ukraine. We stand by Ukrainian people in practical terms. In one hour, I am convening for the fourth time in this week the European Union Foreign Ministers Council for an extraordinary meeting and following up the request from Minister Kuleba, Foreign Minister of Ukraine, I will today propose to use the European Peace Facility for two emergency assistance measures to finance the supply of lethal material to the Ukrainian army as well as urgently needed fuel, protective equipment, and medical supplies. This invasion of Ukraine by the Russian Federation has seen a, a total reversal of traditional European attitudes, whether it's towards uh, the amount of GDP which is uh, spent on its military or even Germany uh, sending weapons of uh, weapons of war to uh, another country and overtly wanting to get into a conflict something which is not wanted to do since 1945. Um, I want to talk now uh, about how the rest of Europe is going to be changed by by this conflict. Uh, Tyrin Fischer, you're in Berlin, and we've mentioned Germany here in the, in the fact that German foreign policy has completely done a 180 position uh, because of the uh, the conflict in the Ukraine. Was there any debate about uh, about Germany with its new chancellor? Having the robust position that he that he had vis a vis supporting Ukraine within Germany, considering that Germany, for historic reasons, has been quite pacifist since 1945. Thank you, Royfield, for the question. Uh, I'm sure there were uh, debates, uh, but uh, the, the truth is, is that uh, what was that three weeks ago when um, when Olaf Scholz uh, gave his speech on Sunday in in the Bundestag in the uh, in in Parliament. And, uh, it was, a, it was a surprise for everybody, including his own party. And his own party really started to debate it afterwards. And I think, uh, also people in the Green Party started asking questions. Wait a second. Where is all this money coming from? Uh, why are we suddenly spending it on, uh, on, on the military? Um, I think, uh, a large percentage of the population, uh, shifted indeed with him and uh saw that it was necessary for for germany to to be prepared militarily and i remember talking to uh one of the people uh who just said you know up until now i thought you could just talk to people and talk sense into them and uh i i realized there are people like putin in the world and uh you you can't just uh talk rationally with them you have to be ready to protect themselves, and I think I think a lot of people in Germany um, were quite shocked by that. I think I, mean, I think the whole world is shocked by this, but I think for Germans it was a, a different kind of shock. 
hopefully I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Juhu. Uh, you're from Finland and Finland is very obviously on, on the front line. Finland is a member of the EU, but not a part of NATO. And there's, and Finland now is looking to join NATO. So again, same question to you as I asked here in here. Was there much debate within Finland as to this course, course of action? Or was this just something which everybody saw as a reflective thing that Finland needed to do, apply to join NATO, look to have stronger security ties with the West because of this unprovoked Russian attack on Ukraine? Uh, this Russian attack has had a great impact in Finland. And you could briefly say that before this conflict, the support of NATO membership in Finland was below 30%, and that was maybe the clear reason why Finland has not been interested in joining NATO. But now, after this conflict, the support is somewhere above 60%. And so it may well be that Finland will join NATO. We'll see. There are lots of discussions going on in, in the, among the politicians and so on. Something will happen. I don't know how far Finland will go, but Finland will stay, take steps towards NATO. Another thing that I know that has happened in Finland is that Finland has traditionally been a country that has not sent any weapons to any conflict areas. But now this case seems so different that that policy was immediately changed. I think the same happened also in Sweden and I guess in Germany too. That's my very short summary of what has happened in Finland. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on stage and giving us the Finnish perspective. Where does NATO membership go from here? Let's leave Ukraine out of it just for now. First question to you, Emily. Piotr, feel free to jump in. Are we going to see um, Finland, Sweden, and let's say uh, North Macedonia join? Is this a case of to be literally to be a European country, uh, you need NATO membership kind of going forward? And also... Um, how long do we think that um, the majority of European countries are going to be spending more than 2% of their GDP on, on military defence? Is this just a, a fad of the moment or is this going to be uh, an action which is going to be uh, still in place, let's say, in 10, 15 years later? So first question to you, Ben, where does NATO go here? Let's say that there is a relative peace in the next two months or so. Do just more countries sign up for NATO? Do we have more American material in places like Poland, etc.? More British troops as are in the Baltics, etc. And we just have an expanded NATO. Ben Mendelssohn. Oh, thank you, Roy Phil. Um, and I should preface this by saying I'm, I'm uh, sitting here on a stage with some experts in, in, in the field, and I. And I know what I don't know, so uh, I'm coming at this as an amateur, and my background is much uh, greater in, in Africa and South America. Uh, with that said, um, look, it, it's the, the fact is, if we knew now, uh, if we knew then what we know now, I think we would have handled this differently. Um, uh, I do think uh, it, it makes sense. It did make sense before for NATO to expand, I didn't think. It seemed as though that everybody was staying in their own place, except for uh, obviously Georgia and, and Crimea, uh, which I was amazed that, uh, that NATO didn't take a stronger stance uh, after Crimea, but it did, um, and it allowed it to get to the next step. So I think it's fairly academic. Um, it, it, there is definitely an international buy-in that, that this is a, an exceptional uh, occurrence that we haven't seen in, in generations. This is really, uh, at this point, a military genocide. And, and, and Putin has made it clear that he wants to abolish a whole country. Um, so, I, you know, NATO, uh, I, I do believe that there's uh, makes sense for Finland and Sweden to, to be accepted into NATO, and and that um, that the uh, Baltic countries uh, need to be protected; they are part of NATO, and that there needs to be a line drawn. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's the direction it's going. That that NATO will 
pull into the borders that it currently has without expansion. So it won't go into Ukraine right now. But if there's any provocation, um, that, that there would be a strong response if, um, if Putin decided to expand uh, beyond what he's doing now. In the meantime, there just needs to be maximum pressure to, on him uh, about Ukraine because it, it's, I, I don't know, they, this is just, you know, very, very disturbing. Anyway, I hope I, hope I helped a little bit. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, contribution, Ben. Um, Emily, um, we haven't talked about Georgia at all uh, in, in, in our deliberations, uh, very obviously because uh, it's Ukraine which is suffering massively from this uh, uh, unprovoked attack from its uh, much larger neighbour. Going forward, should NATO offer a security guarantee to Georgia, considering that it was Georgia that was first attacked by Putin's Russia back in 2008? Well, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, NATO sort of needs to decide where it should position itself um, in the long term. I think, I think, honestly, the NATO structure is going to have to be rethought anyway, um, if there is a potential solution scenario, you know, in which Russia is soundly defeated and Ukraine joins NATO as a protective mechanism and security guarantor, then I also, and in that case, I think and suspect that Sweden and Finland, for instance, would also be interested in joining, then I absolutely think that both Georgia and Moldova should be included in that expansion. Now, again, returning to what I said before, we know that these types of guarantees are the things that Vladimir Putin is saying are going to provoke a nuclear response. So I think at the moment, it's more likely to see NATO sort of waiting it out as an institution. Um, if, if again, if, if there's a scenario in which Russia is defeated and the world order is renegotiated, you know, aside outside of Russia with the idea of protection of these smaller republics that were previously in the Russian sphere of influence, um, you know, those, the protection of those, those republics, those nations, um, should be a priority. And I, so I certainly think, I, I honestly, I don't see a scenario in which Ukraine is tracked onto NATO membership that Georgia is not also tracked onto membership. I think that seems only, only fair, only reasonable. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different position on this, um, which is not justifying Russia's actions, but I think it's a bit more sympathetic. Um, NATO should not expand anymore. Uh, it has expanded enough. Um, not only should it not expand, um, there should be a firm and hard look at its current composition. And I don't mean that from the sense that we should boot existing members out. Certainly not. They have a right to be there. But NATO seriously needs to take a reflection about um, where it is, what it wants to do, um, and how it wants to go about doing that. Uh, what I mean by that is you could add Sweden, you could add Finland, for sure. Uh, and if they really want to, then they should be given the opportunity to at least be voted. We must remember that it's not like they just are brought in. All member states have to vote them in and there has to be a unanimous decision. Um, now, it's likely Finland and Sweden would be given that access. However, I do not think that Moldova and Georgia should be a part of that, much like I do not really think that they should join the European Union. I think that the at this point, you're beginning to lose the geographical boundaries of what we call Europe, uh, moving into Central Asia and uh, and sort of completely different geographical areas. Um, so um, it's, it's a difficult one. Uh, I think there needs to be a bit like the continued... Um, obsession almost or infatuation that some policymakers have with expanding the European Union without perhaps ironing out the issues that already exist within the 28 member states or 27. Um, you know, we, we, we should focus primarily for, uh, first on sorting out the situation. Um, Finland has activated uh, what's known as the MS, uh, MISI, sorry, MSI, uh, which is basically a format by which they can increase their information sharing and intelligence acquisition. So that is already uh, a, a, a step up. We've seen the NATO response force or NRF activated for the first time in its history. 
Uh, and if anything, this conflict has completely backfired for Vladimir Putin because it's made NATO relevant again. It's given it a, a, a legitimization that it had lacked for the best part of 25 years. Um, so we have fundamentally seen the European security scene change. And you've got Germany committing $100 billion worth of funding, France pushing more and more for a European defence force. So there are certainly ways that I think, um, should we say, countries in the broader area of the European continent could, could engage with. But I do not think that we should put all our eggs in one basket with NATO. I think NATO is big enough as it is. And we should perhaps look at reconstructing the composition so that, you know, Partners for Peace, or PFP, which is one of the looser arrangements that some countries, including Russia, we should remember, has with NATO, uh, could perhaps be a little bit more of a comprehensive uh, you know, method of security assurances. We've also seen this growing role of minilateralism, right? The way that Britain has signed this trilateral agreement with Ukraine and Poland. The UK is also pushing for the V4, so Austria, Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland to be the leading voices in some kind of post-conflict narrative with Ukraine. Could they potentially sign some agreements and security pact between the five of them? That that And that is something that we see as a security assurance for the Ukrainians. There are many areas that we can explore here, but putting it all within the um, auspices of NATO, I think, is... Uh, it isn't going to be the the best way forward. That is just uh, one of this week's exploration into what peace will look like or could look like after the conflict in Ukraine is over. We did two hours worth of recording. And what I didn't want to do is burden you, dear listener, with all of that. So breaking it up into two parts. Here is part one. And uh, part two will be with you in the next couple of days. Don't forget, folks, uh, you can email me if you've got a question uh, at royfield at gmail.com. Please, please, please go onto Apple iTunes and write us a review. We've had precious few of them uh, recently, but uh, positive reviews, what it does, it helps get us up those podcast charts. So it's incredible, important, incredibly important way for a podcast to get new listeners please go on to apple itunes write us a review if we think we deserve it give us five stars don't forget folks left to center politics is right thinking politics but we don't demonize or stigmatize our right-leaning brothers and sisters but we try and win them over the strength of our arguments the commons the space where citizens can debate and consult and converse is the basis of all democracies take care look after yourselves bye-bye Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.